Good morning. Please join me in a prayer. Lord God, the creator of all this earth and all the heavens and all that we know, if there was ever a time when we needed to lift our voices to you, it is now. We're tired. We've been doing our best all across this land, people trying to figure out how we stay safe and how we keep others safe too. And we've seen unprecedented change and disruption. And then over the last couple of weeks, we've been dealing with an election that never seems to quite have an ending and questions about how leadership guides us in this country and how we come together as, as a nation. We pray that your influence and your spirit would guide us. We pray for a, a revival of hearts to turn back in faith and humility to you, that whatever side of the aisle we might find ourselves on politically, whatever our top issues are, that we would be able to hear the commands of King Jesus and that we would dare to love our neighbors as ourselves. Let it start with us. Let's start with our church. Not that we're the only ones that would do this, but that we would take this seriously and that we would dare to hold on to our beliefs and our convictions and at the same time love people who are different from us in radical, powerful, clear ways. Lord, that can only happen as there's a transformation of the heart. So we offer our hearts to you and our minds as well. Allow us to learn what it is to love you with all that we have and to serve you. Open our eyes to see what you're doing around us, and even in the midst of this confusing time. For Lord, there are people who are asking questions, and there are people who are searching for truth and meaning and life. And these are all the things that you are giving away through Jesus. <clears throat> so I pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears and give us the ability to listen well. We pray that you would make a difference in our local communities here across the South Shore, that you would give us opportunities to serve others and to impart words of wisdom and truth and hope that aren't just words that spill out into the air, but that are words that are anchored in, in your word and your convictions and in the things that you are doing in this world. Forgive us our sins. Forgive us the times when we've been angry with each other, times when our, our values have been betrayed by our actions or, and our words, give us the humility to recognize before you that we need help and we need change and we need a revolution that comes from your Holy Spirit, changing the way that we think, the way that we talk. We pray that your grace would overflow within each of us, that by the time we walk away from this place or wherever we're watching online today, that we would have had a powerful encounter with your directions for life that bring clarity for how we are to live in the midst of a crisis time. Lord, we pray for uh, families that are struggling to put food on the table where there have been jobs lost within our congregation. We pray that you would open doors as we knock and seek and ask we pray for strength for the Roach family with the 
loss of Brian's dad this week, that you'd comfort them, that you would show up around their lives and around the farewells that they are going to be saying. We pray that you would administer strength and hope. Lord, as a result of coming here together, I pray that you would give each of us a sense of your presence and your desire to bless your people, even in the midst of trying times, and that you would embolden our faith so that we would dare to walk with you and trust that you have a better future in mind for each one of us. And even in the midst of seasons like this one, that you are at work through your people. So, we ask this morning as we look into your word that you'd allow us to understand and that you'd give us conviction about how to live. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the great annual treats for people who live in this New England region is the availability of fresh New England lobster. Perhaps you're aware that from time to time, lobsters have to leave their shells in order to grow. They need the shell in order to protect them from being torn apart from predators, yet when they grow, that old shell has to be abandoned. If they don't abandon it, the old shell soon becomes their prison and finally their casket. The tricky part for the lobster is the brief period of time between when the old shell is discarded and thrown aside and the new one is formed. During that terribly vulnerable period, the transition must be very scary for a lobster. Of course, I'm, I'm applying human traits and feelings to a lobster, not knowing what they really can sense. But think of it. Currents gleefully cartwheel them from coral to kelp. Hungry schools of fish are ready to make them part of their food chain. And for a while at least, the old shell must look really, really good. You know what? We're not so different from the lobster. To change and grow, we must sometimes shed our shells, a structure, a framework, something that we've depended on. That observation begs a question that we must ask over and over. And the question is this, are you, am I, willing to trust God enough to embrace the kind of change that is necessary for us to grow into the people that He wants us to become? This month we are in a series that focuses on God's five purposes for every Christian. And by focusing our attention on these five purposes that come from Jesus and reminding us of things that we have taught before and that we have celebrated together, we are each week diving deeper into our understanding of why God has put us here on this earth. So today we're focusing on the third purposes. This one rises from the Great Commission. We've been looking at the last two weeks at the Great Commandment. These two powerful statements that come from Jesus. And this has to do with an important biblical concept that we call discipleship. This weekend is part three of our Reclaim Your Purpose series, and it centers on this topic. Disciples who obey Jesus. So, good morning. Once again, I am blessed to be able to stand with you here today. I want to welcome those of you who are here in the worship center with us and those of you who are watching online as well. We are all learning and we are growing in Christ together. So, let's dive into this amazing challenge that comes from Jesus right now. 
I'd like to first just take a couple of minutes to look at where we have been over the last couple of weeks, especially for those of you who may not have been able to tune in with us. What we've said in a nutshell over the last two Sundays is first that worship is our first priority. Jesus in the great commandment in in Matthew chapter 22 replies to a question and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. We noted that these commandments are great because Jesus called them great, not because we decide that. And we said that when we read commands that come directly from Jesus, we don't merely consider them, we don't vote on whether we will think about following them. We take these as commands that are marching orders from our King, from Jesus. And then in the second week, we saw that loving God leads to loving others as ourselves. He goes on in that same passage to say, and the second is like it, meaning the second greatest is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Again, Jesus is the one who identified loving our neighbors as one of the great commandments, even the second greatest only to loving God himself. The value of learning to love our neighbors is a non-negotiable operating value around here because we identify ourselves as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, or as Christians. If we can have a little bit of fun with this in a post-election season, if there really is a post-election season, this is Jesus' plan for making love great again. By loving God with every part of our makeup, by loving our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. Now think of it for a minute. What's at stake? This is what we talked about last Sunday. People begin to see Jesus when they see us loving as Jesus loved. They begin to see Jesus living through us and His Spirit guiding us and His words challenging us. Now, our key passage for the next three Sundays comes from Matthew 28, 18 to 20, which Brandon read for you a few moments ago. What I would like to do is is read just our key verse for today. It's verses 19 and 20. Jesus says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, and if I shorten this just a bit, jumping to verse 20, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Here's the question that's running behind that. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in this age or in any age? And here's the main idea that I want to get across this morning. So if you're going to just tune in for the the main nugget and then tune out, here it is. I'll give it to you. Because God wants me to become more like Jesus, He calls me to live as a disciple who hears and obeys Him. Because God wants me and He wants you to live as His disciples. He calls us to live as those who hear and obey Him. Now, the first thing that I need to stress is that God has a goal for your life. And the goal is very simple. He wants you to become like Jesus. Ephesians 4.15 in the message, which is a very modern translation, says God wants us to grow up like Christ in everything. The Bible tells us this again in Romans 8.29. It says that for for those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Most people struggle to understand concepts like God's foreknowledge. But here's the part that is abundantly clear. This isn't a situation where the jury is still out. God's goal is well expressed in Scripture, and His goal is for every Christian to be conformed to the image of Jesus. Think of that for a minute. He doesn't have small plans for us. He doesn't want us to be just a little bit Christian or have some Christian dust sprinkled on us somewhere. He wants you and me to have our hearts and our minds changed so that we are conformed to the image of Christ. His goal is to form the heart and character of Jesus in you and me. 
in such a way that keeping the part of you that makes you uniquely you intact, he wants to shape our hearts and our minds and our character so that we become transformed people made more and more like Jesus the longer that we walk with him. So, my third purpose, your third purpose, is to become like Christ. The first purpose is to worship the Lord with our hearts, our souls, and our minds. The second purpose that he lays out for us is ministry, where we love our neighbors as ourselves. And the third is discipleship, where we become mature, committed, sent disciples of Jesus. Rick Warren, in his book, the 40 day, or in his study of the 40 days of purpose, described three tools that God uses in that process. Let me walk through them really quickly. God uses trouble to teach us to trust Him. So the trouble in your life is never wasted. God uses all those things. Romans chapter 5 says, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. God uses the downside of our life to do great things. And in that process, He leads to perseverance, character, and hope. The second unexpected tool that God uses is that God uses temptation to teach us to obey. Matthew 4.1 says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. So even in the case of Jesus, part of the process of God proving the obedience of Jesus was by leading him out to be tempted. And there's a plus side sometimes with the temptations in our lives. When we stand strong through the temptations, God is forming character within us, and He teaches us to obey. And and here's the third unexpected tool that God uses. He uses our trespasses to teach us to forgive. So the Bible says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ forgave you. That's Ephesians 4.32. And He wants us to learn in the midst of the troubles that we have in this world, to be people who are forgiving and who are kind and compassionate. And because we know that we sin against each other and we depend on the grace of God, we can extend that same grace to others step by step. So again, our big idea for this morning is because God wants me to become like Jesus, He calls me to live as a disciple who hears and obeys Him. I'd like to present to you in the main section of our teaching this morning four key thoughts about discipleship. Here's the first one. Jesus used and embraced this term, disciples. So verse 19 says, therefore go and make disciples. This is a major component of the Great Commission. Notice that Jesus uses this word, disciple. He didn't simply gather fans or followers. He didn't simply command us to be church attenders. And Jesus didn't coin the word Christian either. That came later. Acts 11.26 is where Luke tells us that the disciples were first called Christians in the city of Antioch, which was the second major Christian congregation after Jerusalem. And so I have a question. When you hear that word disciple, what comes to mind? For me, I first think of the original 12 disciples who spent three years with Jesus. Today, in in our world, the word Christian can mean many other things in different contexts, whereas disciple seems to indicate a deep commitment to someone or to something. Think of it this way. In NFL football, Mike Vrabel and Josh McDaniels might be considered disciples of Bill Belichick. 
They have learned from him, and they use his coaching philosophy in their work. One here is still in New England, another in Tennessee. And there are other people who have learned from him who, who take the, the Belichick philosophy with them. So next, notice this final scene between Jesus and his disciples in Galilee. The 11 remaining disciples, Judas is now dead, they meet Jesus on a mountain after the resurrection. Matthew writes that when they saw him, they worshipped him. In other words, they were absolutely in awe of Jesus. They were experiencing the risen Jesus after knowing that he died on that cross. But get this, the next words say, but some doubted. So these disciples of Jesus, even the 11 who are remaining, who gather on the mountainside, did not have a perfect faith without any flaws. They were people like you and me. There were even some doubts in there in the midst of their experience of the risen Jesus. And then Jesus addresses these disciples and he commands them to go out and make more disciples. This section from Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is known as the Great Commission. As with the Great Commandment, we take these as marching orders from King Jesus. What may be surprising to some is the actual meaning of the term disciple. The Greek word that's used here in the New Testament is a term that Jesus used to refer to learners who listen to a master teacher and then adopt his way of life. So by definition, a disciple is not necessarily an expert, but a learner. In fact, some of them still were working through their doubts. A disciple is committed to practicing the way of the master. So that a disciple is a committed learner, but more than a learner, a practitioner. Eventually, the disciple enters a new stage of learning that involves gathering one's own group of disciples who learn the way of the Master. So there was very little confusion over terms in the early church. There was no such thing in the first century church as a nominal Christian, meaning in name only. And there was no such thing as a casual Christian who would pick and choose, oh, I like this part of Christian faith, I like that part of Christian faith, but we'll leave the rest behind. There probably were people who were simply church attenders, seekers asking questions and trying to figure out if there are enough reasons for them to believe in Jesus Christ. But a Christian in that context was a disciple who was committed to living out the teaching of Jesus. A Christian was a disciple who would eventually teach other disciples. And friends, I have news for you. That's what Jesus calls you and me to become, not casual but committed. So our first thought is that Jesus embraced this term, disciple. It's what he used to describe his followers. Here's the second note about discipleship. Disciples go through stages of development. They never start off right at the maximum point. They start off at the beginning somewhere. Maybe that's why Matthew even tells us that some of them on that day, seeing Jesus on the mountaintop with that final conversation they have with him before he ascends back to the heavens, some of them still had doubts they had to work through. The first stage that we see is, is what I would call the calling stage. So we read these words in Matthew chapter 4 where Jesus says to the very first two disciples that he called to, to come and walk with him. Come follow me, and I will send you to fish for people. The old King James Version says, I will make you fishers of men. Second, we see an intense instructional phase that follows after that. Jesus traveled from village to village, teaching crowds, 
but always taking the 12 who were his original disciples with him and including them more and more. The Sermon on the Mount was given in one of these instructional stage moments. Jesus saw the crowds and he went up on a mountainside, a mountainside, but as the crowds were listening, he was teaching the disciples who were close right up in front. This seems to be teaching for disciples done before crowds who were listening in and being exposed to his ideas for the first time. So we have a calling stage followed by an instructional stage. And third, we see a sending stage. Mark 6 verse 7 describes this. It says, Calling the twelve to him, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the evil spirits. Have you ever wondered why Jesus sent out his disciples two by two? Well, there are a number of reasons. There is encouragement that comes when you have a partner in ministry and you're not alone. Their strength became multiplied when they went out two by two. This also became a pattern for ministry multiplication later on. Think of the, the uh, events that happened as the Christian story began to spill out throughout Asia and Europe. Think of Paul and Barnabas. Later on, Paul and Silas or Priscilla and Aquila. These great partnership teams who would go out and they would share the gospel with people in towns and cities that had never heard about Jesus Christ and churches would emerge. Luke chapter 10 records a scene where Jesus sent out 72 disciples, two by two. At this point, there were a larger group of disciples, another 60 who were probably a little bit farther out in the circle from the original 12 who walked most closely with Jesus. He sent them to villages ahead where he was going to stay next. He told them that if a villager received them in peace, to stay in that home. But if the village did not welcome them, to shake the dust from their feet and move on. And he gave them authority to heal the sick. Imagine that. To cast out demons as he had done. And with joy they came back to Jesus and reported on all the things that had happened. This was the sending stage. And then we see a fourth stage, the commissioning stage that is written about here in Matthew 28. Ready to ascend to heaven, Jesus commissioned the 11 remaining disciples in these words of the Great Commission. And from this point on, Jesus' disciples considered themselves sent and commissioned. Jesus completed walking them through each of these stages in a very short period of time, less than three years. Now, in this light, think of North River's mission statement. Our mission statement is people being forever changed by God's love and daily changing the South Shore and beyond for Jesus. What is this saying? We see ourselves not just as people who casually soak in a few of the words of Jesus, but people who are being fundamentally changed by God's love, so much so that He sends us out to make a difference in the world, little by little, changing things around us or influencing people around us. We see ourselves as people who are saved by the grace of God and then sent into the world around us. So Jesus embraced this term disciple. Disciples go through stages of development and you and I are all somewhere within those stages. Here's the third note about discipleship. Disciples are people who obey Jesus' commands. Now I didn't make this up. This comes right here from the Great Commission. He says, therefore, go and make disciples and baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. 
Now, I shortened that, not because the other words aren't important, but I wanted to get to the point that I'm driving at here, that he was teaching them to obey everything that he had commanded the original disciples. Disciples are people who are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This had been something very, very new on the scene. For Jewish people to be baptized was a strange thought. Prior to John the Baptist and Jesus, baptism was offered only to non-Jewish people who had put their faith in the God of Israel. It was meant to be a cleansing work in, in that frame of mind. But then when John shows up on the scene, he is told to baptize people and prepare them for this great work that God was going to do, which had to do with the coming of Jesus, His own Son. And then Jesus and His disciples baptized people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As if to say, you are fundamentally a different person when the grace of God washes over you. And these early Christians had embraced the risk of being seen as different when they were baptized in order to identify themselves with Jesus. Disciples are people who openly obey Jesus, and this was just one of the first signs. One of the hallmark identifications of Christian people is that we obey Jesus. We hear His words, and we wrestle to begin to make them part of the framework of our lives. Do you think of yourself as one who is committed to obeying Jesus? To obey Jesus, we need to read and reread the Gospels continually. This is where we encounter the words and teachings and challenges of Jesus in such a way that they actually become a part of our thinking and we start to dare to operate on these values, not just rehearse them in church. When you read, pay attention to the original context, but read it as if the Bible was written to you. This is how God begins to speak to us through His Word. When we are whispering prayers as we read, saying, God, what do you want me to see for today? God, is there something for me to apply today? Disciples ultimately are people who obey everything that Jesus commanded them. We find this fascinating word that's right there in the text of the gospel. This word, everything. I don't know about you, but I'd like to be one of those people who could obey Jesus some other time. And there are parts of my life where I don't want to obey Jesus all of the time. There are some times where obeying Jesus makes life very uncomfortable because I have to change patterns that become well ingrained. Ways of serving myself or my own needs first that feel good to me. But that word everything, that troubling word everything is right there. That was his goal, that they would produce disciples who are obeying in every possible way. Have you ever heard of the term selective obedience? This is where your child only obeys the parts of your requests or your commands that he or she likes or, or find easy. I don't know about you, but I'm very good at that. I can, I can do selective obedience really, really well. And I can select which parts I should excel in, too. Soldiers are demoted or court-martialed for selective obedience. King Saul lost his dynasty over selective obedience. Disciples are taught to obey everything that Jesus commands, and this is what he's looking for today, that we are people not obsessed in some kind of overly literal fashion where we're judging each other or judging every day, but where we are seeking his favor in such a way, saying, Lord, I don't want to be one of those people where your word just washes over my head when I learn something. I want to put it into practice in my life. 
I want to be one of those people who, little by little, you are making more like Jesus. And here's the fourth note. Disciples are people who know Jesus' presence. I love the way the Great Commission ends. He says, "...and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." The great benefit of living as a disciple is the ongoing presence of Jesus. Jesus made this promise as He was leaving His original disciples and as they were going to carry on without His physical presence. So they had to understand that He was speaking of His spiritual presence, not physical presence. This promise applies to disciples of Jesus today who are committed to learning His way and His teaching who are committed to living by His principles, who are sent into every corner of the workplace and the world in His name. How does Jesus do this? Through the indwelling of God's Holy Spirit. When you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus, we begin a new life in Christ. And that new life is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. And through His Holy Spirit, Jesus lives in us and through us. His Spirit never leaves us. And the Holy Spirit begins to open our eyes to Scripture. He convicts us of our personal sins and failures. He serves as God's guarantee or deposit that we belong to Him and that He never quits on us. And the Holy Spirit intercedes with God on our behalf. The Bible tells us all these things. Because God wants me to become like Jesus, He calls me to live as a disciple who hears and obeys Him. Now, here's what I, how I'd like to wrap this up. I'd like to challenge you, those of you who are in the room, those of you who are watching wherever you are, to either start or renew your commitment to living as disciples of Jesus. I'm going to assume that most of the people who are listening today have a basic Christian faith. Would you be willing to pray this prayer with me? Lord Jesus, I want to become more like you. I want to live in ways that honor you. Today I renew or start afresh my commitment to live my life as a disciple who learns from the Master and who walks in your ways. Partner with me and others who share this goal and let us enjoy your presence as we are sent by you. God, my prayer this morning is that you will so thoroughly, powerfully, and thoughtfully take up the leadership role in our lives that we will desire the changes that you bring in our lives, that you won't just make us better people, but you will make us more like Jesus in every possible way that we are capable of being more like Jesus. Change our character. Change the way that we think. Change the desires of our hearts. Thank you for the individual personalities and individual gifts that you have given to us. But allow us to have the heart of Jesus that flows through everything that we do. And as we live for Jesus, we pray that you will change small corners of the world. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.